0: Tonight I want to speak to you guys and and speak to this group um, from a verse in James chapter 4. James, uh, the book of James is a letter that that seems to be written to Jewish people that are somewhat spread out um, from persecution probably and, and it seems like the overall theme of James is to try and get the attention of the people, to try and get them to realize that their faith, that they're claiming within their hearts, should produce good works, that true faith does produce something. You will see actions by that. And there's a verse in chapter 4 that I've always thought if, if, if something happened and James could only have muttered a few words to, to these people, if there only could have been a few words written down in this book, It could have been these few words and it would have covered everything that he was trying to do with much less detail. James chapter 4 and verse 8 says, Draw nigh to God and He will draw nigh to you. It's a simple thought that covers so much ground. Draw nigh to God and He will draw nigh to you. So I'd like to speak to you tonight from from this thought. Draw nigh to God, today, tomorrow, forever. We find a story in the book of Luke, chapter 8, beginning in verse 43. Jesus is traveling, and there's people all around him on every side, people bumping into him, people touching him. The disciples are with him, and he's making his way through a town. And in verse 43, we read that there is a woman, a woman who has suffered, a woman having an issue of blood 12 years, which had spent all her living upon physicians, neither could be healed of any. So we find a woman in a situation where she has not just went weeks or months Not been any short period of time at all where she has had to deal with a disease in her body. An issue of blood, as the Bible describes. Something's going on within her that she can't control. She's got a problem that, that she's tried to deal with, and apparently it was something that was bad enough that she had sought out physicians. Those that have been trained to help her. Those that have went through schooling to be able to try and get someone in her situation to be healed. And she gave everything that she had. It wasn't like she spent just a little bit of money. The Bible says that she gave all of her living to these physicians to try to seek out the cure, to try to seek out a healing, to try and find some sort of closure to what she was dealing with, what she was faced with 12 years. is hard for anyone in here to picture. You wake up with the cold and you feel like it's the end of the world. Your hair's a wreck, and you can't get it to work right, and you go to work that way, and then half the ladies just feel like their whole world's crashing down. It's the worst thing ever. And yet, there's really nothing to that. It's something simple that happens to everyone in life. The common cold happens to everyone. We know what that experience is like. Many of us in here have probably experienced the flu much worse you're you're demobilized you're in the bed you're trying to to do things that you normally could do, but you're just fatigued and you're drained and and you feel totally just useless at that point and and your head's hurting, and you're having to rely on everybody else to help you out and and you're if you're like me at all and and you're a mama 's boy you're trying to get to your mom and you're trying to have her help you out, even since i've been married i've found myself on my mom 's couch trying to trying to get taken care of while I was supposedly near death. Um, and to me, that seems like a big deal. You know, it seems like that really bothered me. It really shook up my life. And, and five days go by, and I'm better. I'm back to as good as new, and I completely can forget about what I went through. But it wasn't so with this woman. It wasn't a few days, and it wasn't a week. It wasn't a month. It wasn't two years, five years, ten years. It was 12 years Of every moment, of every day of her life, she had this disease burden in her. And as you read in Leviticus, we figure out that there was laws that were established. And a woman being in this predicament had herself labeled as being unclean. Unclean. What's unclean mean? She was dirty, she was filthy, needed a bath. No, what it meant was that she could not come in contact with any other people. If you was to bump into her and you were to touch her, you would be considered unclean. And you would have to go seven days away from her by yourself. And at the end of those seven days, there would have to be sacrifices made on your behalf just so you could be clean again. If she sat down on a piece of furniture, the furniture became unclean. If she covered up with the cover, the cover became unclean. And you could see how this must have played on her because she couldn't turn to her mom for help. She couldn't rely on a companion or a friend to come in next to her and and try to help her through her situation. So it was 12 years of feeling alone. 12 years of feeling like there was no hope. 12 years, 12 long years of not having any intimate relationship with family or friends. 12 years, 12 long years. And she finds herself, after those 12 years, we have no record of at what point she ran out of money. We have no record at, of at what point she just could not go back to the physicians. But all we know is that she was willing to spare nothing to try to be healed. She was willing to hold back nothing. All of her income all of her finances could have been possessions in her home. Everything that was created in her living was gone because she found hope in the physician, so she thought she found hope in everything that she was trying to do to get to the place of peace. And yet the end brought her no peace. It brought her a lot of despair. And she felt like she had to go through this all alone. And you know it's 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 very common for people today, to be in the same situation as this woman was. Extremely common. In fact, I wouldn't have to ask and wouldn't dare ask for anybody to raise their hands, but I would bet the majority of this group has been in the same place that this woman found herself. And that's a place not of an issue of blood, perhaps, Maybe not a disease you've ever went through or experienced. Maybe nothing that kept you away from your friends or your family. But I promise you that in everybody's life, they reach a point, sometimes recognized, sometimes unrecognized, where they feel completely alone and empty. They feel like there's something missing. And you know, you can't quite grasp it. it just It's something inside your spirit, inside your being that says, man, I feel like I'm broken or or I feel like there's just a void in my life. There's, there's a gap there. There's something that's, that's just supposed to be there. I know it's supposed to be there, but it's not there. People are in that place every day. And although they surround themselves with friends, although they surround themselves with family, inside their heart, they feel like they're all alone. They feel like they can't turn to anybody. They feel like no one would understand what they're going through. That nobody could come down to their level, and no one else has experienced it. It's only them that's going through this, and so people immediately they try to deal with it and deal with it in different situations. They uh, some people become workaholics and. And they just—they say this void is there, something's missing. And, and if I would just work harder and if I would just put in more hours and if I would just go to, to, the, to the full extent of trying to do the best I can to build wealth or to build material possessions or to build some type of financial gain, if I just put all of my energies and my efforts into that, somewhere in that there's got to be peace and there's got to be a fulfillment. And they go their entire lives seeking to get rid of that feeling of emptiness through work. And, and sadly, some people turn to alcohol or they turn to drugs and they feel like they can just turn to those things and and while they're using them it takes them into a different consciousness and they don't have to face the trouble they're they're feeling they don't have to face the bills that are on the table they don't have to face the things that are just approaching them and and strangling the life out of them and so they find themselves many times just lost in alcohol been in a drunken stupor and lost turn into drugs and and things of that nature trying to escape that feeling trying to satisfy that one feeling of emptiness that you've got to deal with some do it in in, in companionship with the opposite sex some turn to a boyfriend or a girlfriend to try to hold to to try to, to try to comfort them and they try to find that, that peace and they don't find it there so they find themselves with another companion and another companion and, and people like that sometimes get looked down upon. But let me tell you what's driving that person many times is exactly what's driving the workaholic or the alcoholic or anybody that's out searching for something and, and doing things contrary to what God would have them to do but they're full force into it, driven by that emptiness. Driven by something inside of them. they are not finding it. And you know what happens when you put all your hope into those things. And you put all of your efforts into those things. It's like the lottery. You've got 20 bucks. You're buying the $20 worth of tickets. And you've got some big hope that at the end of scratching these off. Or at the end of when the numbers are read off on the news. You're going to be a millionaire. You're going to pay off all your debt. You're going to give to charity. And everything will be all right. Until that night comes. And they're not your winning numbers, and you're flat out of your 20 bucks, and you've got nothing else to turn to. Then a little bit of despair becomes complete despair. Then you feel like there's no hope. Then you feel like there's nothing that you can grasp to. And man, what a dirty, dark, ugly place that becomes. But most people find themselves there, and they just find another way to try to deal with that empty feeling and that need that needs to be fixed in their lives until they come to their old age and they're getting ready to pass away or they're on their deathbed and they unfortunately, so sadly, leave this earth without ever fulfilling what they felt inside that was empty. And so many people are in the place that this woman is in. She's got no hope. There's no light at the end of the tunnel for her. In fact, something that I found very interesting in reading her story is the Bible mentions a few things. In fact, it mentions just the one thing that she turned to to try to get fixed, to try to get help. There's no story of her having turned to the priests for prayer. There's no story of her in past in her life turning to God and seeking out His favor for a healing or for a touch. And I know that sounds kind of odd, but no. Man, that just once again puts one more mark on the life of the ordinary person who's going through what they're going through because they do everything they can to fix it. Man, have you not been there, done everything you can to try to help, everything you can to try and solve it, but you never turn to God? You never lash out to him. You never cry out to him. You never ask him to touch you. And then when it comes time and you really truly think he is the answer, what happens? The guilt settles in on you. And you start to feel like, oh, how could I ever call on him when he's my last resort? When I've pushed him to the very back burner, and I'm using him only because I've got nowhere else to go. Now, I don't know what this woman was thinking. I'm not sure. And maybe she did somehow go to the priest before, but I would have thought at the importance of the text that it might have been mentioned if it did happen. But it's not mentioned, and she's here, and she's in a crowd, and, and she's supposed to be unclean. She's Definitely got to stay far from people and not to touch anybody or anything. And if, if she's been out there long, she's had to have been on her feet because she couldn't have sat down. Because had she sat down, the very thing she sat upon would have been unclean. And, and she had to have just had something within her that wanted to get close to him when he came passing by. Because we don't even know if she showed up expecting to see him or if she just happened to be out and he was there. My thought is she went expecting see him because she was unclean, and it would bring her no joy to be out in the public and people to know of her situation and her stance but she stepped out and she went there where jesus was going to be and and the crowds of people they were around him and they were bumping into him and then all of a sudden she was willing to step forward against everybody right there there's probably no doubt that she may even have bumped into people because jesus was surrounded by them Surrounded by them, and she made her way through the crowd to touch them. It's something totally different when we recognize how unclean she was by the law, that she would even put herself in a position of a crowd. And yes she did. And she made her way to him, and when she touched the hem of his garment, it was immediate. It was not no more begging, it was not no more spending, it was not any more looking, but just the touch. Brought the healing immediately to her body. And Jesus stopped everyone. And he asked, who touched me? And Peter was a smart aleck anyways. So I would imagine that when we read the text and he says, you know, there's people all around you. Lord, what do you mean who touched you? It probably was filled with a little bit of sarcasm. Just kind of joking around with Jesus like, Lord, are you serious? There's people everywhere, people all around you. But he didn't understand the question that Jesus was asking. Jesus didn't want to know who was just heading the same direction as him. He didn't want to know who had somehow made their way into the mob of people and bumped into him. He wasn't concerned with that. What he wanted to know is he wanted to know who was it that came to me and touched me with the purpose in their life who pushed through issues, who pushed through circumstances to get a piece, just a glimpse, a touch of me so that they could be healed. He knew the moment it happened. The virtue left his body, the Bible said. And when he asked the question, he wasn't concerned about running out of virtue. He wasn't concerned. He wasn't upset that somebody had come behind him or from the side of him to touch him. But he wanted them to know when he called them out that they had done the right thing. He wanted her to stand up, and she didn't. Everybody was silent. She hid herself. She didn't want to be known. I'm sure the the feeling of how he was the last resort was overcoming her. I'm sure the feeling of how she made him the last choice was making her feel guilty. Especially, listen, especially after him being the last choice. And her touching him and being healed. How powerful is that? That your God loves you enough that even if you make him last, when you do turn to him... He will change your life. When you do give him the opportunity to move into your heart, he will move. He will move. It's automatic. It happens. There was no process that took place. She drew close to him and touched him. And automatically, without Jesus even having to react in his physical body, the virtue flowed out and she was healed. I was at a wedding this last week. No, no, last month. It was my cousin's wedding. It was a beautiful outdoor wedding. And uh, I was sitting at a table at the reception, talking with my father and his sister. Excuse me, let me get a little drink. here. And uh, during the end of the wedding, it was the, uh, what do you call it? After the wedding, he sit at the table, reception. <clears throat> it was at the reception, and I was eating some snacks, my wife, some family members, and there was a, a young man there. I'd say he was young. He was my age. That's pretty young, I would think. Um, so he he comes by, and my dad starts talking to him. <clears throat> Apparently, my dad knew him since he was about this tall, and dad was asking him questions about uh, his life and how things were going. And And, and if you haven't met my dad, uh, over the last few years, he's he's uh, he's really just... Turning towards God and and, and and trying to let God lead his life, leaps and bounds. Amazing what God has done in his life. But he's he he's also very talkative. Dad loves to talk. Loves. To, in fact, he slowed Aaron down for three hours while I was working at your house the other day, Mom. He was just talking, 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 talking. Didn't want to bust him out, but that's the truth. And and brother Fridley, that's right. Brother Fridley was upset because he couldn't talk and. and, and no, okay, so the story goes that we're sitting there and we're, we're just talking. Dad starts talking to him about the Lord. And it's not my conversation. I don't know the guy. Um, and dad's talking to him, and, and the young man responds this way. He says, well, how do you even really know which, which religion is right? He's like, how, how can you say that Islam is wrong or, or Buddhism is wrong or, or all these other religions? And he said, and he said beside that, He's like, and he's, he's nice, polite, but being upfront with it. So besides that, this is a bunch of, bunch of bunk, baloney, something like that. Baloney doesn't seem like the type of word he would have used. But he said, you're, you're trying to serve a God who asks you to do stuff that's impossible. Who can go their life without having sex before marriage? Who can go without drinking, without partying? I mean, come on. And he's telling my dad, he's like, come on, that can't be for real. And the conversation went on, and I, I sat there quietly, just listening. You know, it wasn't my place to talk. It probably, I probably would have messed it up even worse. And and then he left, and he went on. And I got home that night, and and I was thinking about it. And I thought about, man, what should I have said? What could I have said? And and as I'm preparing for this sermon, it just comes right back into my mind that that he thinks it's impossible because he's never tried to draw near to God from the outside. This This walk that God calls us to seems so difficult and so hard. But man, if you would just take that first step and draw near to God, it is unbelievable the strength you receive, the hope you receive, the blessings you receive, and the, the anointing of God's presence that would come upon you and help you with the next step. Yes, it's impossible. Yes, it's hard. You can't do it by yourself. But the moment you rely on Him, things become real. And that that, that empty void right there turns into a step of concrete that you can just walk on and then. As you draw near in that way, oh, the joy that comes as you draw near the next way. And you find that next step. And then there's more joy that comes in your life through trials that you overcome by relying on Him. And He forms the next step. And at the end of that, you realize, oh, I should have started sooner. Because everything He said is possible. The book of Exodus, chapter 33. Moses is in a very wonderful situation he is on the top of mount sinai and he is alone with god something a situation he's familiar with because he can remember that when he was out wandering and the bush was burning and and god spoke from that bush and he called him there was that moment of just him and god he was used to that he understood what that was like and and he was called of God for a purpose and God used him to, to save a nation of his people that were in bondage and in slavery and it was not by an overnight event, it was by Moses having to go back repeatedly to Pharaoh and, and repeatedly God would have to pour out some plague and do some, something miraculous to finally convince these people. And Moses, Moses was the guy that was the head of that. God used to do it. And certain things happened, and many miracles took place, and and they they make it out of slavery, and Moses is still still the man chosen to lead the people, and, and then they get to Mount Sinai in six days of God's glory on the top of the mountain, and then he calls out to one person it's Moses. And calls Moses up there to the top to be with him. And that's where we find Moses in Exodus 33. God is laying out the plans that he has for Moses and the plans that he has for the children of Israel and, and all the things that they are to do. And it's, it's just so awesome because these people came from slavery. They were bound. They couldn't do anything and of their own accord. And now God is laying out a plan for them that's his plan. It's his ways. And Moses is the one that he's speaking to. Moses is the man that he has chosen to even continue to lead them from this point on. And Moses starts talking to God and and he says, I have found grace in your sight, but you have not let me know who you will send with me. Next verse, paraphrase, would say, how will I know thy way? The text on this, on on in, in Exodus 33, is 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 to me a, a very beautiful story because Moses has went through what he's went through with God, and and they've been together. He's seen many great things, and and then he finds himself talking to God, and and he knows that he's found grace from God, and he says to him that that you you have not shown me yet who you will send with me. How will I know your way? And and part of that probably stems from when Moses was first called, he didn't. He, he didn't feel like he was adequate enough, and he made excuses, and so God sent Aaron with him. And so here Moses is in what I would call chapter 2 of the will of God for him and the purpose of God for him, and he asks that question one more time. He doesn't make any excuses. Maybe he's just assuming since God hooked him up the first time with a helper, he'll hook him up the second time with a helper. And so he speaks to him, and he asks him who he will send with him how will i know your way and god responds to him and he answers him with i will go with you the exact answer was something like my presence will go with thee you don't have to doubt when you're out there if it's my will or not because you can turn to me i will be there You don't have to look to another person to speak for you, another person to try and lead you, another person to help explain what's really going on, because, Moses, I'm going with you. You're not going by yourself, and you're not going with another person, Moses. Your God, the one that delivered, the one that called you, the one that created you, will be right there by yourself. So when you get to the place where you're trying to figure out what my will is for your life, Moses, ask me. When you're trying to decide what the next step is or or you need wisdom to try and lead such a multitude of people, Moses, ask me. And if you're trying to figure out what kings to put in place or what rulers to put in place, if if you're trying to figure out how to deal with different things throughout your life, Moses, don't turn to someone else me and God at this moment had gotten very close to Moses and very personal with him and he wanted him to rest assured that he was always going to be with him and every step that we take in our lives if we will draw nigh to God we can rest assured that same very thing that he is with us if we will just try to be obedient to Him, if we will really just follow what He has given us, the guidelines, and submit to the calling He has put on our life, then we can be assured when times of trouble will come. And let me tell you, they will. He will be with you. You won't have to doubt. You won't have to worry. You won't have to try to figure out. If you're following His ways and drawing nigh to Him, when it comes time for you to need Him, He is there. He will always be there. God is telling him about his glory. The verses recorded in Exodus and back in chapter 29, one of them said that that I will sanctify the tabernacle. My people will be drawn to the tabernacle and sanctified by my glory. Glory. And that word glory of God is something that came up a lot when the miracles were taking place. You could see his glory in different events that were taking place as God was showing his people and Moses how strong he really was. And there's no doubt that Moses caught on to the thing that was driving God, the thing that was powerful with God was his glory. It was who he was, what he represented was who made God what he really was. And so Moses, when he's having this conversation on this mountain with God and and God just assures him that he's not going by himself and he's not sending anybody else with him, but he will be there with him. Verse third, chapter 33 and verse 18, it's, it's like a little kid is the way I read this. You've got to read it this way and just see if it seems the same way to you. It's like Moses is there listening to God. He's talking to God and, and the conversation's going back and forth and it's an unbelievable experience that he's even on the mountain with God all by himself. This personal thing is going on between Moses and between God. And Moses seems like he's just talking and talking and God goes on to say that, yes, I'm going to do things that way. I am going to go with you. And the very next verse after that period is Moses saying, I beseech thee, show me thy glory. And it's like the energy just built built up in him so much that he couldn't wait anymore and it just exploded. And he he tried to get God's attention even after the promise that God was going to go with him. Moses was there on a personal little note with God and his desire was to see his glory. You see, when Moses got alone with God, he didn't ask God to perform some great miracle when he got back to being around among the people. And when he was walking away and he was going to leave God's presence, he didn't ask for God to give him some sign that the people could see that he was the man that was chosen. No, no. When Moses was in the one-on-one with God, his mind was made up and his heart was desiring one thing, and it was to draw nigh to God. What do you mean? Wasn't Moses close enough? Hadn't he been the chosen man from the beginning? Hadn't he been the hand that had brought forth the miracles to bring forth the nation to freedom? Hadn't he been the one that was called up to the mountain? Hadn't he been the one who God had chosen to lead after this point? Wasn't he the one that God promised his presence would always go with him and that's how he would know his will? Yes, that's him. But Moses knew that as long as his heart was beating, there was one purpose in his life and it was to draw nigh to God. We as Christians far too many times can get a confused ideal in our mind that we have arrived, that we have somehow made it because we went to church because we showed up and lifted our hands, because we gave to charity, because we had been baptized 20 years ago, because we had received the Holy Ghost 20 years ago, that we had somehow came to the place where we could stop seeking the face of God. Can I tell you that if you're in this room and you've not felt His touch the way you once used to feel it, you probably should try drawing nigh to God. If you've been in a service recently and you've seen other people experiencing something in the Holy Ghost and God's presence is moving and and people are being touched and you're feeling nothing, let me tell you to draw nigh to God. And don't put up any walls when the preacher says that. Don't try to rebuke the preacher for saying you should draw nigh to God because when I was a drug addict out in the streets, a thief and a robber, the call of my life was to draw nigh to God. When I was in boys' school, juvenile, and prison, the call from God was for me to draw nigh. And as I stand here preaching today, the call hasn't changed. Draw nigh to God. For the life of everyone, non-believer and believer, layman and pastor, prostitute and evangelist, draw nigh to God. You never fail when you draw nigh to God. You never lose when you draw nigh to God. But every time you draw nigh to God, James said, he will draw nigh to you. Every time it doesn't fail well you don't know my circumstances i don't need to draw nigh to god you don't know what i've been through or how i've looked away from god all these years and did my own thing oh if you would just draw nigh one time if you would draw nigh one time if you would just try to get close to him It's unbelievable, it's unmeasurable what happens in your life when you start to draw nigh to Him. You know that uh, He said, if you would draw nigh in repentance, He would honor that. What's He saying? He's saying, if you draw nigh to me by acknowledging you've done me wrong and lived differently than I've asked you to, and you will turn to me He says, if you will draw nigh to me in the way of baptism, and you go down in the waters and the name of Jesus Christ is called over you, God says, oh yeah, I will honor that. I will absolutely draw nigh to that. In fact, if you would do that and you would find yourself in the waters of baptism with my name being called over you, you may not be perfect. You may not be the best in your class. You may not be the smartest nor the brightest. You may never have turned to God until that night that you make that decision. But if you make the decision, And you find yourself in those waters, and you hear his name being called over you. He has promised to draw nigh and honor it by leaving everything you ever did in those waters. Forgotten forever. That means every lie, every time you stole, every time you didn't do what you were supposed to. Maybe you were a robber or a drug dealer. Every single thing, nothing is left out. The blood would cover everything. It all. And if you'll draw nigh that way, if you'll draw nigh that way, he promised that he would send his spirit to come into your heart. Why do you need his spirit? Man, why what what did Moses need? He needed God's presence with him. How was Moses to know the plan? How was Moses to be able to overcome? Where was he gonna get the wisdom from? God Today, we get it from God. It's funny, nothing's changed. His Spirit comes to live within you so that you know that you're His. Moses, how will I know thy way? Born again believer, how will you know you're His? The Spirit will come to live within you.